before have we had such a blessed opportunity to build the more perfect union of our founders' dreams. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the true genius of America. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! We are free at last! America, we have come so far. We have seen so much. But there's so much more to do. Little did they know when they left home, just how their trip would end. My friends Nelson, AJ, and Shama arrived at beautiful Florence Lake in the Sierra Mountains of California. They got word on September 5 that a wildfire had started some distance away. And within 24 hours, it had burned 32,000 acres. With the fires getting closer and the one road out being engulfed in flames, they were stuck. But a promise had been made. The National Guard was on its way. Driving their cars into the dry bed of Lake Edison, they were ready to get out of there. Soon, the Chinook helicopter arrived as promised, packed all of them on, and airlifted them high above the flaming forest below. They were safe, and they thanked God. Last time, we learned of the incredible revival that will take place at the end of time. The Bible calls it the latter rain. As the everlasting gospel in the three angels' messages are preached, many people will accept God's truth and give their lives to Christ. In contrast, the devil will have counterfeit revivals and religion by force happening at the same time. God's genuine followers will be so filled with His spirit of compassion and goodness that the world will clearly see the truth. Now up to this point, three major things have happened on planet Earth. First, there has been a worldwide preaching of the gospel, just as Jesus said. Second, the mark of the beast has been enforced in the final conflict over worship. And third, all humanity will make a final choice. Everyone will know the truth and make a decision either for God or against Him. It's often said that when America sneezes, the whole world catches a cold. By this time, infected with the sickness of religious intolerance, far worse than COVID, America will have sneezed and the whole world will have caught the cold. Revelation 13 is clear. Every nation worldwide will have compromised and legally forced people to worship the beast and its image. Revelation 15 verse 1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven. That's John the Revelator seeing this vision. He said, Great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. What is the wrath of God? It's not his anger at sinners. God's not throwing a tantrum here. God's wrath is His judgment upon sin. 
On the cross, Christ endured the wrath, the judgment of God, so that whoever accepts his life by faith would never have to. Now, before the plagues uh, come, John says, And I, John, saw something uh, like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Verse 3, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. John in vision sees God's people way down in time once they're in heaven and they're singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. God must have known that John would need to see this beautiful picture at the end of the story because of how terrible the next part is. But before we get there, what is the song of Moses and the Lamb? Well, this actually points us back to the Exodus story where the Israelites escaped Egypt. Stuck in slavery, God's people were in desperate need of his help. God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. With each refusal of Pharaoh came another plague upon him and the land of Egypt. Finally, after his firstborn son died, Pharaoh told Moses to take all the Israelites and go. They traveled toward the Red Sea, and soon they found themselves being approached by an angry Pharaoh with his army. With mountains to the north and to the south, the Red Sea to the east, they were trapped but they were about to see that for Yahweh, their God, nothing is impossible. God told Moses, stretch out your rod over the sea and divide it. And as he did, the unimaginable started to take place before their eyes. A strong east wind came, dividing the waters of the Red Sea all the way to its floor. And the sea floor became dry ground with walls of water on either side of them. All more than two million Israelites crossed over in a single night. As Pharaoh foolishly led his armies through in pursuit, God brought the walls of water down upon them, wiping them out. God's people were in awe and joy, indescribable joy welled up in their hearts. They were free and they began to sing together and it's known as the Song of Moses. You can find the lyrics in Exodus 15. Now back to Revelation 15. The song of Moses and the Lamb will be sung by God's people who've made it to heaven and the new earth. Like the Israelites, it looked like their enemies had trapped them and that death was certain. But God came to the rescue. And those who had intended their destruction have been destroyed. Satan and his demons will never again tempt, attack, or annoy them. The song they sing is the song of their experience because God has brought them through. It's hard to understand what was going through Pharaoh's mind. I mean, if I uh, were him and I saw walls of water all the way through the Red Sea and the Israelites on the other side, I'd probably be like, whoa, if their God can do that, they can have their freedom. I'll stay right here. But Pharaoh had become so hardened in his bitter rebellion against God that no display of divine power could change him. And the Bible says that the class of people upon whom the seven last plagues will fall are like Pharaoh. The proclamation from heaven has gone out. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. Probation has closed. The door of salvation has shut. Before the coming of Jesus, two classes are developed. The pure and the impure. The holy and the unholy. The final crisis that is coming upon our world will lead men and women to make one of two decisions, completely for Christ 
or completely against Him. Now you may be thinking, no way, Justin. God will never shut the door of salvation. And that's true. But human beings will. At this point, God will have done everything in His power to draw people to choose Him. But the point will come when everyone will have made their eternal choice. So this decree from heaven doesn't change hearts, but it recognizes the eternal decisions that have taken place on planet Earth. And we've been talking in this series about freedom of religion and freedom of choice because they're the foundation of God's government. God respects every decision, even though many break His heart. The decisions of those who reject Him break His heart of love. The decisions that people make in that final crisis are the culmination of the decisions that they've been making their entire lives. And by their own decisions, their eternal destiny is fixed. The two harvests of the earth are ripe, the golden grain and the gory grapes. Once that happens, the plagues are poured out. Now something significant is where the plagues come from. Revelation 15, 5 and 6 say, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues. Now these angels came out of the temple, and it's called the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. This reminds us of the Old Testament sanctuary and the Ark of the Covenant that contained the Ten Commandments, the law of God. This is significant. The plagues are about to be poured out upon those who have rejected God's ways, His love, and His law. On the other hand, Revelation 14 verse 12 describes God's people as those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. You know, there are still many leaders in America who recognize the immense importance of God's law. Judge Roy Moore said in just February of this year, one of the most important issues affecting our country is a lack of morality. The Ten Commandments represent the laws of nature and of nature's God upon which our nation began in 1776. Friends, God's law matters on a personal and on a national level. The reason that heaven smiled down upon the United States from its beginning on forward was because the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution aligned with the principles of heaven's constitution, which is God's law. And freedom of choice and freedom of faith are foundational. By this time, the entire world will have forsaken these fundamental freedoms and legally forced people to worship the beast and its image. And now the time has come. The last person has made their eternal decision. Humanity's door of salvation has swung closed and the plagues are about to fall. When God pulls back His hand of protection, the world is plunged into the most severe calamity it has ever seen. Now what about God's people? Do they go through the plagues, through the tribulation? Remember, Revelation 15 said, they will have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. Over and over and over and over, they have gained the victory. And Revelation 14.10 tells us that it's only those who worship the beast and his image that will receive them and receive his mark who will experience the wrath of God in the seven last plagues. History also helps with an answer. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who wouldn't worship and bow down to the golden image in Babylon? They were not saved from the fire, but they were saved through the fire. Jesus was with them in the flames, not outside, but in the flames. Christ was there. 
Also, the ancient Israelites weren't delivered until after the plagues of Egypt. They were untouched by the last seven of those ten plagues. And so it will be at the end of time. God's people are present, but protected through the plagues and delivered after them. How are we to be protected from the plagues? The same way that Israel was in Egypt. They put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. Likewise, God's people at the end of time will overcome by the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land is symbolic of the journey of God's people today from earth, our Babylon or Egypt, to heaven, our promised land. And it's all made possible through the blood of the Lamb. In one battle in the French and Indian War, George Washington had two horses shot out from under him. His hat was shot off of his head. He had four bullet holes that went all the way through his coat, but he was unharmed. How? In the words of Washington himself in a letter he wrote, the miraculous care of providence protected me beyond all human expectation. Friends, God's people will be unharmed in the plagues like Washington was, even and it will be through the miraculous care of God. For God's people at the end who refuse to worship the image of the beast, the issue in the battle between God and Satan is what it has always been, worship. And the question comes to each of us, will I trust God? Will I give my allegiance to Him and obey Him? Will I worship Him alone? The issue is a test of loyalty. Friends, I don't know about you, but I want to hold on to God. I want to give my all to the God who gave His all for me on Calvary. Now in the rest of our time, we'll do two things together. First, we'll do an overview of the plagues. And as we do that, we're going to answer the question, how can we possibly see the love of God in the seven last plagues? Here we go. Revelation 16, verse 2. So the first went out and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Sores. Painful, putrid, hideous sores. Why would God send this? Here's why. What did they say when they threatened the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 13? You remember? They said, if you take the mark, you will be secure physically. The mark of the beast is the opposite of the seal of God. It means obeying human commands above the commands of God. Now those who inflicted physical harm upon those who wouldn't take the mark of the beast themselves receive physical harm. They threatened force upon those who were faithful to God, and now they receive these nasty boils. What is the message of the first plague? The message is that all physical security is in Christ. As the plague falls all around them, the words of God's people will be Psalm 46, 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Friends, once we have given our lives to God, our physical security is in Christ. Though the world be literally falling apart around us, we will not be afraid. We won't yield to the intimidation, the threats, and the pressure. Not because we are strong, but because we've given our lives to the one who is. Plague number two, the sea becomes like the blood of a dead man. This is a picture of a red tide. 
In August of 2018, Florida saw the worst red tide in decades as it spread 150 miles up its Gulf Coast. Red tide is caused when microscopic forms of algae produce toxins that attack the central nervous system of sea creatures, killing them. In this case, Florida had 267 tons of dead sea life that washed up on shore. Bulldozers have been needed and sometimes in red tide to, to scoop and get rid of the, the dead sea life that are just piled up on the beach. Friends, if a red tide happens on a global scale, what would happen to the world economy? Commerce mostly happens on the sea. Revelation says in this plague, and every living creature in the sea died. Think about how terrible the stench would be. Beaches will all need bulldozers. And think of the inability of shipping lines to provide food and other products across the world. People would be stocking up on more than just toilet paper. An economic nightmare would take place. What does the second plague say? That all economic security is in Christ. Remember the enforcers of the mark of the beast, what they said? You better receive it or you won't be able to buy or sell. But here in the second plague, they're unable to provide as they promised. The only economic security is in Christ. Plague number three, the rivers and the springs are turned to blood. Now about 90% of the cities in the world are either near the ocean or on the mouth of a major river or along a major river. This is a picture of the Yangtze River in 2012 in China. It mysteriously turned red. This is a small picture of what every river and freshwater source will look like in the third plague, only with blood. What's this all about? Well, in the Bible, water is a symbol of life. Revelation 16, 5 and 6 says, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, because they have shed the blood of the saints and your prophets. It's like Jesus is saying, You thought you had the power over life, but you don't. I am the source of life. What is the lesson behind this literal, physical plague? Well, remember the first plague. The lesson is that all physical security is in Christ. The beast power threatened to torment them, but Jesus said, don't be afraid. All physical security is in me. The beast power said, you won't be able to buy or sell. What does Jesus say? Trust me, I'm able to feed you during that time. All economic security is in me. The beast power then said, don't take the mark of the beast and we'll take your life. But Jesus says, your eternal life is safe in me. I am the author of life. The message of the third plague, friends, is that all true life is in Christ. And if your life is not yet His, you've not yet really started to live. Friends, you and I may go through this time where all around us will see chaos and disaster, but God will protect and provide for His people. The fourth plague is poured out on the sun and it scorches mankind. This will be the ultimate global warming. Remember what the issue is in the last days? It's over worship. The largest thing in our sky has been the object of worship down through the centuries. Every pagan society, Greece, Rome, the Mayans, the Persians, the Babylonians, you name it, they have worshipped the sun. In the last days, there is a great controversy between sun worship and Sabbath worship, between worshipping the one that made and worshipping the things that have been made. Now verse 9 is critical. It says, they blasphemed the name of God and did not repent and give Him glory. 
You'd think that those who rejected his love, those who were suffering under the seven last plagues, would get on their knees and admit their wrongs to God. But they don't. Why not? Because as we saw, this is after the door of salvation has been shut. Everyone will have made their final decision for all eternity and would never change their mind no matter how much time they'd had. Whether 10 or 50 more years, it would make no difference. They have fixed their characters. It's clearly seen in the plagues that they have trusted in the wrong sources, that there is only one who can deliver during those plagues, and he is the creator God. What does the fourth plague tell us? That all true worship is in Christ. Only he is worthy of our worship. And as Jesus said, uh, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, in loving obedience to him, the Sabbath of the Lord has united the hearts of Christ's people to his. Nothing can compare with the love of the Lord and the peace of his presence. Like the early Americans, these people's life motto will have been, no king but King Jesus. The fifth plague, supernatural darkness. Like in Egypt, it's a darkness that can even be felt. Where is this darkness of the fifth plague? Verse 10 says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and on his ki- and his kingdom became full of darkness. By this time, the beast's kingdom is global. The world wandered after the beast, the Bible says. They looked to him, a human religious authority whose united church and state. They looked to that power for light and for truth, but they only found tradition and falsehood. The literal darkness indicates a deeper spiritual darkness. What is God saying in the fifth plague? All light and truth is only in Jesus. If you want the light of truth, come to Christ. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word enlightens the future. The human race follow a false religious leader at the end of time and they follow them into falsehood, into darkness. But God's people follow in the light and the truth of his holy word. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. So the fact is, if we walk in the darkness of error now, we will be engulfed in that physical darkness in the plagues. But if we walk in the light of God's truth now, we will be surrounded by the light of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, it says, they did not repent of their deeds. And it says just before that, they blasphemed the God of heaven. Friends, it is extremely dangerous for us to turn away from any teaching of God's word. If you do that, you will gradually be led into more and more darkness. Our only safety is to walk in the joy, the light, and the truth of God's word. Leg number six, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. This satanic trinity prepares the masses uh, for Armageddon. What is Armageddon? In verse 14, it says, The battle of the great day of God Almighty. This is another term for uh, the battle of Armageddon. The word Armageddon comes from the Hebrew root words Har and Megiddo. And it means the Mount of Megiddo. Now the plains, there's no mountain in Megiddo. There are plains there. The nearest mountain is Mount Carmel. But the plains of Megiddo were the place of many massive ancient battles. So in the last days of Earth's history, there's conflict, famine, and strife. There's economic disaster all around. As the world is falling apart, 
a powerful world leader arises to bring everyone together. Satan and his demons work miracles. And the masses of people, the legislators, yield to the popular desire of the masses. And a common day of rest and worship is enforced upon humanity. Those who worship the Creator cannot go along. Therefore, they worship the true God on His true Sabbath. And as a result of this, every human being is catapulted to make a final decision for or against Christ. When the decision is finally made, the judgments of God are poured out, one after another. By the time of the sixth plague, those who have followed the beast in this unity movement, this confederacy, recognize uh, that what they thought would happen has not. They thought that they could bring peace to earth. Angrily, they marshal their forces. All the forces of hell are deployed against God's people. And they prepare for the battle of Armageddon. What is it? What's this battle? It's a massive struggle where the wicked all try to destroy the good. And what does the Bible say? Psalm 91 verses 5 through 8. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness nor for the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. What is the message of the sixth plague? That only in Christ are we sheltered and safe. Jesus Christ is going to come and deliver His people. In the plagues we have seen, first, our physical security is in Christ. Second, our economic security is in Christ. Third, all true life is in Christ. Fourth, all true worship is in Christ. Fifth, all light and truth. It's not with the beast. It's in Christ. Sixth, all shelter and safety is in Christ. And seventh, in the seventh and the last plague, we see that all deliverance is in Christ. Just when it looks like God's people will have their lives snuffed out by Satan and his forces, the voice of God from heaven says, it is finished. The biggest earthquake in human history shakes the entire globe. The tidal waves swallow up entire islands. Mountains break off and are thrown into the midst of the sea. Great hail falls from the sky, about 25 kilos or 55 pounds each. The artillery of heaven has come. It's Armageddon. Human wickedness is destroyed. God's people are sheltered by Him, protected by Him, and rescued by Him. Soon after, Jesus arrives to rescue His people. They've lived for this day. They've longed for this day. They've looked forward to living in a better land because heaven's constitution guarantees liberty forever. The pilgrims came to America seeking a better country, and God's people are pilgrims in this world, journeying to our heavenly home. And now, the time has finally come. Like my camping friends who had been promised that an airlift rescue was coming to lift them above the flames, so Jesus' airlift rescue mission has arrived. Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Those in their graves who followed Him are resurrected, and they meet Jesus in the sky. It goes on in verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus will airlift us up above this burning planet. We'll each have our passport, which is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Our flight is paid for by Jesus himself. 
coming with him are all the holy angels, the most frequent flyers in the universe. And we'll wing our way together to our heavenly home. No longer pilgrims far from home, but citizens and permanent residents of the new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever. Friend, maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Maybe you've read or heard some of these things before and something in your heart has said, if this is true, I want to be there. I'd like to invite you to pick up your phone, text or call the number you see on your screen. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love to study the Bible together and be a part of your journey with Jesus. My Country Tis of Thee, written by a university student, was the unofficial U.S. national anthem for 100 years. And I'd like to share with you the final verse. It applies in any country. And as I make it mine, I want to invite you to make this last verse your prayer as well. Our Father's God, to Thee, author of liberty, to Thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by Thy might, great God, our King. Father, this is our prayer. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. I hope you enjoyed this presentation. And if you did, know that this is really just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, on what the Bible has to say on this subject. And so if you'd like more information for personal study or to journey with through someone from our team here at America and the End, we want to invite you to call or text the number you see on your screen. And we'd love to connect you with a free uh, set of study guides called The Prophetic Code or connect you with one of our team uh, to journey with you as you learn more about what the Bible has to say on these very important topics. We look forward to connecting with you. Good evening and welcome back everyone to the live Q&A session that we have every single night after America in the End. It's really good to be back here with you guys and thank you for joining us. Um, you know what we do because you've been with us for nine nights. We expand upon the presentation for that evening. We field questions from YouTube and Facebook and we just have a great time uh, considering what scripture has to say. I've really, really enjoyed uh, each and every evening, and uh, it's a bit sad that we're on the last night, but we won't dwell on that now. <laughs> we'll just jump right into our questions uh, for the evening. We're going to jump right into it, guys, because we've already got some questions that have come in um, online. And so, here we go. Um, this you touched on a bit in the message, Justin, but you didn't teach on this subject, but mm. the subject you taught on covered this. And so, Terry is asking from Facebook, Christians... In parts of, the, well, let me just put these on. That will help these glasses for this. These old eyes. Okay, much better. Christians in parts of the Bible speak about the rapture. How do you see this? And at what point of Satan's rule does it come or happen? Mm, yeah, great question, Terry. And um, glad that you asked. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four. It's uh, it's a verse that I read toward the end of the presentation, you're probably familiar with it. When we take a look at what the Bible has to say on the topic of Jesus' return and the rapture, uh, we have to take a look at everything that it says. Um, and having said that, we can look at just a few of the verses to see 
we can get a picture of what Jesus' return will be like. The word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. It comes from the Latin word rapiro, uh, which means basically to, um, to, yeah, to be caught up. Thank you. That's right. And so it's not a word we find in the Bible. And the concept that many Christians hold to, uh, when you really weigh it in all of the biblical evidence, um, well, actually, I'll let you, you be the judge. Let's look at a few verses together. First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Um, this is very clear that Jesus' return is going to be audible. It's going to be loud. People are going to be able to hear it. In fact, it'll be so powerful that the righteous dead who've given their lives to Christ before they died, his voice will pierce the tomb, the graves that they are in, and they will resurrect and come back. In fact, the Bible says that all of the righteous from all the ages past will resurrect when Christ comes. Um, and Jesus echoes this in John chapter 5 when he talks about the first resurrection that will happen when he returns. So here we see that it's, it is audible. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, it says, The Son of Man shall come uh, in all of his glory, in the glory of the Father, with all the holy angels with him. Mm -hmm. So here we see that it's glorious. It's going to be dazzlingly bright. Um, the second coming of Christ is not only audible, it will be visible by every eye on planet Earth that is alive. Um, uh, Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Every eye shall see him, and they also even who pierced him. Um, and so... The Bible is clear that when Jesus returns for his people, it, there's nothing secret about it. It is a, a very clear, loud, visible, glorious, the earth is going to be heaving to and fro before this with the most massive earthquake, the Bible says in Revelation, that the world has ever seen. Um, islands will be disappearing. Oceans will be swallowing up mountains that will be thrown into the midst of seas. And so this is the picture the Bible gives us of Christ's return. Now, the question may, um, you may wonder, well, what about those who say, you know, in Matthew 24, Jesus says that, uh, you know, one will be taken and the other will be left, right? One will be grinding at the mill. Two women will be grinding at the, will, at the mill. One will be taken and the other will be left. What about that? And, um, you know, there's more I could say on it, but I want to leave some for you guys uh, to share if you wanted to tackle that. Sure, part of it. Um, let's turn over to Matthew 24 and let's what it see, see what it says over here. And what's important to do here is to read what the Bible says and to note what the Bible doesn't say yeah. on this particular issue. So if we go to Matthew chapter 24, uh, we'll head over there, Matthew chapter 24, and if we go to... Uh, here we are in verse 40. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding in the mill, the one will be taken and the other left. Let me ask you a very simple question. Is there anything in those two verses that indicates that when this event happens, one is taken, the other is left, that that event will be secret, silent and invisible? Because, you know, there are those who see what's called the secret rapture. Now, of course, we believe in the rapture. That means to yep. be taken up. But the secret rapture is not found in Scripture. It doesn't say that it will be secret. It doesn't say that it will be secret, silent, or invisible. It simply says that two people might be standing side by side. One is saved and one is lost when Jesus comes back. That's what it does say. Mm -hmm. Now, if we continue on, we need to ask ourselves a little bit of, you know, 
context. What is the context of this particular passage? Because others have come to me and said, well, what about verse 43? And in verse 43, the Bible says, but know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken up. And so there are those who come to me and they say, oh, okay, this is very clear. Jesus is coming like a thief. All right, that's clear. However, we need to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean when the Bible says that Jesus is coming like a thief? Does that mean that Jesus is going to sneak in, steal away the righteous and sneak off again? Do all thieves operate that way? Not all of them. No. There are many different ways of stealing things. There is what is called a ram raid where you, you know, drive a truck through the front of a shop, grab everything, load it in the truck and drive off. That's not sneaking, sneaking in. So not all thieves have sneakiness or secret, silent and invisible as their MO. But what all thieves do have in common is that, well, you know what? They don't get on the phone the day before, ring you up and say, I'm coming over to rob your place. <laughs> they all come unexpected. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the context here? Is Jesus trying to, com- is Jesus trying to communicate uh, secret, silent and invisible, or is Jesus trying to communicate unexpectedness? Mm. All right. Yeah. Have I gone too long? No, I think it's fantastic. Okay. I'm just going to give you some no, context. Loving it. The Bible says in verse 36, mm. but the day, day and the hour knows no man. Then the Bible says it will be like, the days of Noah, when they did not know. Then the Bible says in verse 42, that's the verse before the one we're looking at, what's therefore, for you do not know the hour in which your Lord is coming. Verse 44, therefore be you also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man is coming. Uh, verse 50, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he does not look for him in an hour that he is not aware of. 25 verse 13, what's therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man comes. Jesus could not have gone to greater efforts mm. to make it any clearer what he was talking about when he spoke about a thief. Six times he has given you the context. This is all about Jesus coming unexpectedly. It has nothing to do with Jesus yeah. coming secretly, silently, or invisibly. That's yeah. right. Go ahead. I just want to add one other verse to that one is then in Matthew 24 verse 27. It says, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to be very visible. Mm. You won't miss it. And we won't need CNN to break the news to us. <laughs> no more fake news. <laughs> You'll see it with your own eyes. Yes, amen. Can I, can I give one more verse? Or yeah, 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 go ahead. Okay, so I one, think more, you're one give, more verse on this. I'm really glad that you're going to do this because I think I know the verse you're going to share. And I was going to go crazy if someone didn't share it. So I can see by, by where you are in your Bible, that's what you're okay. going to do. Second Peter 3, verse 10, you oh, can't get a clearer verse. Okay. <laughs> Sorry? That was it. No, go ahead, go ahead. All right. Listen to what the Bible says. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Okay? Watch this. The next words. In the witch. Okay, so now the Bible is going to tell you what is going to happen in the day that the Lord comes as a thief in the night. So the, the day that the Lord will come in the thief in the night, as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now when the atmosphere turns to fire and the surface of the earth turns to molten lava, no one is going to survive that on earth. Mm. That is an unsurvivable event on earth 
That is not a secret rapture.、Mm. If you missed an event like that, well, you know, you missed、yeah. something pretty big. <laughs> True. And、yeah, um, that's a good answer. Just、Thank、one,、you. two more things, really quick.、Uh, Lyle talked about the context there of this. Now, here's what often people say who believe in the secret rapture: one will be taken, and the other will be left. Right? And we have this whole movie series, Left Behind, based on the book series that popularized this theory even more.、Um, they say, oh, some are taken to heaven, and others are left on earth alive. But if you look at the context right here in verse 38, it says, "For as in the days of."、Uh, As in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, verse thirty-nine, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will it be?、Uh, so will the coming of the Son of Man be? In other words, in Noah's day, the ones who were tooken, taken, <laughs> tooken, taken, all of the above, the ones who were taken away were the ones that were wiped out by the flood. They were killed. So it's actually opposite to what a lot of Christians say. Oh, if you're taken, it means you're saved and you're taken to heaven. No, the Bible right before that says that's not what this passage is saying.、Um, now, the most dangerous thing, and this is the last thing I'll say on this topic, but the reason why this is such a dangerous belief is because the devil wants people to think: if I don't make it in the secret rapture,、mm-hmm. no problem. I got seven years to get it straight, and then you know I can be taken. I can go the second time. There's a second chance, but. What people are going to find is if they've bought into this idea, when Jesus returns, that's it.、Mm. The Bible says that we're ready or we're not. We've accepted Him or we've rejected Him. And so, this idea of a secret rapture, the devil's using it to give people a false sense of security,、um, rather than a realization that, man, I need to get right with the Lord and be walking with Him now. Excellent answers, guys. Thank you so much. I、uh, hope that you guys appreciated. Those sentiments and those thoughts.、Um, I'm not going to add to that, other than I'm just going to say that in Revelation 16:15, he preached from Revelation 16 tonight,、yeah. and that was on the seven last plagues. After the sixth plague is described in Revelation 16,、uh, the Bible says the same thing. It says something similar to other places. It says, "Behold, I am coming、mm. as a thief."、Mm. So the coming as a thief. According to the Bible, hasn't happened even after the sixth plague.、Mm, Therefore, you、point. know、uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Bible teaches that the the, the coming of Christ and the the thief like coming—that's、mm. a surprise—comes after the plagues themselves,、Powerful. and so the the believers on earth live through the final times of、mm. earth.、Mm. Powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. All right. Uh, so uh, we'll get to Estelle from Facebook, who asks, "I have a question." To do with those who have died rejecting Jesus, can we pray for these people to accept Christ and receive the Holy Spirit, or is it too late?、Mm. So, I'm pretty sure that Estelle is asking, "Can you pray for the dead?"、Mm. I, is that how you understand the question? So, when someone dies, can you pray for them to accept Jesus in their state after death, or not? Great、Why、question. is everybody、yeah. looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> I just—I was the last well, one to talk. I'm sure Sissy should answer this one. We were just yeah, I think so too. Well, well, we have to first understand what the Bible teaches about what happens when we die, and there's a very good. There's many verses that help this、uh, clarify this for us. The one that's coming to my mind right now, and maybe the others can think of others, is in Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verses five and six, which says, "For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing." And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. 
Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. So elsewhere, we look at the Gospels, we see that when Lazarus died, Jesus said he was sleeping. So we, we come to understand that um, the Bible teaches that death is a sleep. It's an unconscious sleep. And that's why... Um, going to have to help me here. Yeah. Um, that's why the Bible also talks about, I'm going to get, there's two resurrections. Jesus talks yeah. about two resurrections in John chapter 5. Yeah, you're like thinking of six oh, sermons. In yeah, no, 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 <laughs> stop me. <laughs> stop me if I go too far. But there's a verse that comes to mind, another one, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. And it just says, the end of it says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So if the dead know not anything... And then there's two resurrections that Jesus talks about in John 5, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. You want to be in the right resurrection, that's a whole other Bible study. But basically, the dead know nothing. So we don't, we can't pray for them. They're, they're, they're resting in the graves until Jesus comes. And that means right now, while we have life, as long as there is life and breath in us, now is the time for us to accept Jesus and to be praying for those who are, have the opportunity to still make a choice for him. Because yeah. when the grave comes, we can't make that choice. Amen. Amen. So there's a, there's a verse that I want to share with you. It's in Hebrews 9.27, and it says, Just as people are destined to die once, mm. and after that to face the judgment. Mm. And so I think that verse is very clear. Yeah. You have one life to live. You have one opportunity mm. to, to choose. And yeah. now when I say one opportunity to choose, I'm not saying one opportunity in your life. I'm just saying you have one life within which you have the opportunity to choose. And so uh, God honors that choice. And then afterward, once you're dead, the judgment. The Bible speaks nowhere of a, a state of purgatory or some kind of you know, halfway house, so to speak, between heaven and hell and earth and eternity. Mm. It doesn't speak of that at all. And so I, I can sense that the person who's asked the question, um, you know, obviously... Thank God that you care about your, mm. your family members. Mm. But I want to assure you that all that we see in Scripture is a God who's doing everything in His yes. power to save people. And so we don't know what was in the heart of your loved ones as they passed, as they died. Mm. We don't know what the experience of their lives were. Mm. Um, you know, man looks upon the outside, but God looks upon the heart. Mm. And Jesus says that there's going to be many who come from east and west to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so... The people from the East and the West didn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior, but God, the Bible says, pays a ransom for all mm. in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 6. Mm. And 1 Timothy 4.10 says that God is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe, which just simply means that, that God has paid a ransom for everyone, and He's given everyone His Spirit. And there will be people who are saved who did not understand God the way that you do and the way that I do, but who were accessing the power of God's Spirit and who are following God to the best of their ability right. with the knowledge that they had. And so just because your family members didn't verbalize, you know, J-E-S-U-S doesn't mean that they weren't responding on an internal level to the way God was leading them in their That's life. Right. We don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know who's ultimately chosen life and who's ultimately chosen death. Mm -hmm. That's why you know, God's the judge, not us. So, mm -hmm. um, so, yes, the Bible teaches you live once and then you're judged. That's it. No chance after death. But be assured that whatever... Uh, you know, God could do to save your family. He would do it. That's right. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen.
Cool. All right. I didn't think that would end the questioning, but yeah. <laughs> or the, the responding, sorry. No, uh, okay. So thank you, Estelle, for that question. So Harry from Facebook asks, Armageddon, is it a literal battle or a spiritual battle? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, Guy Lyle. Yeah, I was going to say, Lyle. You know, it's so funny. Tonight we've had the most silent <laughs> of all time. Well, I feel like I say something too much sometimes. In Revelation yes. 16, verse 13, this is where you have the uh, Battle of Armageddon spoken about. And what you find is you find it in the middle of the plagues. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these uh, parenthetical uh, sections of the prophecy that is quite common in the book of Revelation where Revelation, we're working its way through a series of information and then you'll get this little section in parentheses which is like, okay, how did we get here? Like, this is how we got here. And so in Revelation 16 verse 13, the Bible says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Now I want you to listen to this and listen to it very, very closely and I want you to ask yourself the question that was asked, is this literal or is this spiritual as we read through it? What, what is the, what is taking place here? I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Okay. Let's stop there for a moment. We have false spirits. They are coming from the dragon, the beast and the false prophet. Now, all of those. Entities exist within the realm of religion. If you would like to know who they are, exactly who they are, then you're need to going to need to get the Prophetic Code Bible Study course that I've written has all the details on who these are right there. And um, just call or text the number in order to get your free copy. Absolutely. We'll just message it on the screen, whatever you'd like to do. We can, we'll make sure that you get that course. Okay. The Bible continues on. It says they are the spirits of, spirits of devils working miracles which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Okay, so I want you to notice here what you've got with the battle of the, and then it continues on. He got, they gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew, Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now, I want you to notice what is actually taking place as you work your way down through this passage. Everything is taking place within the realm of religion. You have evil spirits, you have three religious powers, and they're gathering the world. The kings of the earth are being gathered together. What you notice, the kings of the earth are not being gathered against each other. They are being drawn together. Mm-hmm. This is very, very mm. important to notice. And who are they being drawn in together against? They're oh. being drawn together against God. This is a gathering together against God. And so people will look at, you know, the Valley of Megiddo and say, well, here you go. Here you've got the, uh, this is where this battle is going to be fought and it's going to be between, you know, uh, America and Russia or whoever it might be, whoever the prevailing bad guys are in the world at the particular time, the superpowers. Um, that's not how you study the Bible. You study the Bible by looking at what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not reference the Valley of Megiddo or does not speak about the valley of Megiddo in this passage. There's no mention of it. Mm-hmm. There is Armageddon, and that's a very different word. In fact, the word Armageddon is the exact opposite of a valley. Mm-hmm. Because the Hebrew uh, prefix there, ha, 
means mount. It's what how we would write mount. This is Mount Megiddo, not the Valley of Megiddo. And there is no Mount Megiddo no, in the Middle East. There's no Mount Megiddo anywhere in the Bible. Mm. The word Megiddo simply means a place of slaughter. And so what is taking place here? A gathering of the wicked against God. They're gathered in a place of slaughter, and we find out that that's what happens when Jesus comes back mm. to those that are gathered against him. Yeah, mm. that's right. And they, at the end, mm. um, as pointed out in the message, uh, just to tag on to the end of that, they will marshal their forces against God's people. Um, and it's Christ's return. When they get slaughtered, that's the rescue of his people. And so in that sense, it will be a literal battle in the sense that Christ will defeat the wicked, rescue his people. They'll be destroyed, the Bible says in Second Thessalonians, by the brightness of his coming. And um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just seeing these questions bread. that are coming through. These are massive questions yeah. right here. Yeah. This is like multiple presentations that we're trying to answer yeah. in a matter of minutes. I'm thinking that maybe we shouldn't make America the end. <laughs> the end. Maybe we could do another series that looks at, you know, what happens when we die? What happens when Jesus comes back? What is the millennium all about? Absolutely. You know, stay, stay tuned, guys. There might be something in the future. Just a little bit of a hint right there. <laughs> About uh, yeah, it would be it would be great to do a series answering these questions with the full presentation. Definitely, very good. Yeah. <laughs> Liz Branster asks from YouTube: Are the plagues going to happen all together at the same time, and are they universal? Yeah, very good question. Uh, they are they are not universal. Um, as we look at them, if they were universal, there would be no person left alive on the planet. And the Bible says that um, the, the time of trouble at the end, God will cut it short in righteousness. Otherwise, no flesh would live. No one would be left uh, alive. That is, except for the righteous, because he protects them during the time uh, of the seven last plagues, God's people. Uh, but yeah, that's a good question. That's the answer to that. They are not universal, but they will be taking place uh, all over. Um, we do see an indication, I mentioned it briefly, but I flew through so many things in the presentation that you it was easily missed, no doubt. If you look at Plague 5, Revelation 16, verse 10 says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and the kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. Then, look at verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. So, that was Plague number 1. They still have these sores from plague number one in plague number five. Mm. Um, we didn't get to talk in this series about Bible prophecy and the day for a year principle, you know, one prophetic day equals one literal year. But there's also uh, a mention um, here that, that talks about that. Maybe we could get into it uh, in another series or at a later time. But that's to, to answer that question. We don't know how long, but some Bible scholars based upon uh, that mention of how long it would be, and I think it's... Uh, they may look at Revelation 17, the destruction that comes upon Babylon, I think is, is an hour, if I'm not mistaken. Um, basically, some Bible scholars have suggested that it will be a period of time between maybe six months and a year and a half. Um, I don't quite remember all the details of this at the moment, but text, text us and I'll get you those details and I can get you those quotes from those scholars. They made a pretty convincing case, but I think that's the greatest evidence right there is that uh, those in the fifth plague, which is, you know, second to last almost, uh, are still suffering from the sores of the first plague. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a, a massive amount of time because they hadn't yet healed from 
uh, the first plague. I think you're thinking in um, Revelation 18, verse 8. Is that? Thank you. That's it. Yes. And I have it even marked here. I missed it. <laughs> Revelation 18, 8. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day. Mm. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire. That's talking about Babylon, this uh, false system and confederacy against God. And it says, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. And so if you break down one prophetic day, uh, if a literal, um, if a prophetic day equals a literal year, it would be 360, basically, uh, a year divided by, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought completely and realized <laughs> that I had the math off for a second. If you, uh, if you take the, the day, since there are 365 days in a literal year, um, and you take that to be a prophetic time period, you can break it down uh, to that amount of time, essentially. Yeah. Excellent, guys. Okay, so um, Aaron, I skipped you there, my friend, but now we're back to you. Aaron's asked from Facebook, can you fill us in on the 144,000 God's people? Yeah, I need to study <laughs> this, this, this section of them further. Okay, these guys are going to have a lot to say. I'm sure about the 144,000, we're not going to get exhaustive. We're just going to try to be as concise as possible. But I, I want to just say that uh, John in the Revelation is, is identifying a group of people who are similar to the group of people in the Old Testament who went from the wilderness wanderings after being delivered from Egyptian slavery into the Promised Land. So there's an entire book in the Old Testament written about this. It's called the Book of Numbers. And if you study carefully the book of Numbers, you'll see that uh, the people of Israel, after being freed from Egyptian slavery, Moses brings them uh, to the border of the promised land, or God brings them through Moses' leadership to the border of the promised land, the land that he promised them. And right before he was about to lead them in, the people are numbered. Uh, but they don't get to that first generation, doesn't make it in. So the second generation, 40 years later, they get to the borders of the promised land, and again, they're numbered. And so now here you see in the book of Revelation, um, people who are, you know, the, the world is at the place where people are about to be led mm -hmm. from the wilderness of this earth into the promised land of God's new earth and his new heaven. And people are being numbered here. And so the 144,000 in Revelation 14 are shown in contrast to all the people in Revelation 13 who are receiving the mark of the beast yeah. and worshiping the image of the beast. And they have the father's name written in their forehead. Meaning their religious experience is not just based on them trying to get something from God or them trying to leverage advantages by being associated with God or trying to escape difficult circumstances. These are people who love God for who he is and they know God for who he is. They have a profound relationship with, with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so they follow him wherever he goes. And all the, it's interesting, all of the terms used to describe the 144,000 when you read Revelation 14, they're terms that to a great extent, relate to the, the Israelite people. Uh, it talks about how, I won't get into that, but I'll just leave that statement with you for the sake of time, because I said that we'll try to be concise, and I'll pass it on over to Lyle, who's pretty fired up. Okay, 144,000 very simply can be understood primarily by where they are and what they do. So if you go to Revelation chapter 14, the Bible says, I looked, this is in verse 1, and a lamb stood on Mount Zion with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. I heard the voice from heaven as the voice of many waters. I heard the voice of thunder and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. 
They sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no one could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. First of all, I want you to notice where the 144,000 are. The 144,000 are on Mount Zion. Mm-hmm. They are standing in front of the throne. Mm-hmm. Okay, So that's where they are. That's their geography. Then let's look at what they do. They're singing a new song. Mm-hmm. Okay, So they're standing on Mount Zion in front of the throne singing a song. If you go to Revelation chapter 4, you have a description of the throne of God. And the Bible says uh, in verse 6, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. Let's stop there for a moment. If there is a sea of glass like crystal in front of the throne and 144,000 are standing in front of the throne, they are standing on the sea of glass. So now we have 144,000 standing on the sea of glass in front of the throne singing a song. If you now go to Revelation chapter 15, the Bible says, and it will tell you exactly who they are, I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, those that had gotten the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are your works. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of saints. And so very simply, the Bible tells us that the 144,000 are those who gain the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark. Nobody has done that yet because the mark has not yet been enforced. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the number of his name. This is, the, this is the last group of people who are here on earth when Jesus comes back. That's a very simple part, a very simple answer. And the great thing about this is that every one of us has the privilege of being, of aspiring to be, you know, amongst that group of people. You know, life, hashtag life goals right there. Amen. You know? Can I add one, last, one uh, more no, thing? No, sorry, Sharissa, you can't. Thank you for <laughs> wanting to. And we have two more questions and we're going to uh, nail them right now. So everyone thinks that I'm really jerk? It'll be, ten, I'm, it'll I'm be five jerk, seconds. So go ahead, go right ahead. Five <laughs> seconds. I was just joking, everyone. I was just joking. The most important thing to remember after all of that, which was really good, is if you can't remember it, it's just they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Yes. They follow Jesus. Yes. So, the it's issue a, with the 144,000 is their character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and they're described right there. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so we've got two more questions. We're going to address both of them. Sherry Boyd uh, on YouTube asks, she says, Joel 2 talks about the latter rain and God's spirit being poured out on all people. Does this mean that all people will receive the latter rain? While you guys are looking and thinking, I'll say no. <laughs> what it means is, is that the, the spirit of God can be look. The spirit of God can be poured out, poured out upon all flesh, without all flesh receiving That's and right. being benefited by it. That's right. In Acts chapter two, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says the Holy Spirit fell upon him and the rest of the disciples. And then when they were preaching, uh, other people were convicted in their hearts. Now you can't be convicted in your heart unless the Holy Spirit is be, is convicting you in your heart, right? And so. Uh, there's a big group of people, lots of them, and they're feeling the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's also other people there in Acts chapter 2 who are making fun of the apostolic expression of power and mm-hmm. spirit. And so Acts 2 shows us the Spirit of God can be falling down upon people. Apostles can be receiving it, preaching God's messages, and then people can be hearing God's messages and then really responding positively because they're being convicted in their hearts by the Spirit. And then other people can be right in the midst of all of this 
goings on and just fully uh, be impervious to it, be mm-hmm. be utterly unaffected. So to, to your question, I would say, yes, the Spirit of God is going to fall out upon the earth. The Bible promises this. Mm-hmm. We, we know this is going to happen, but not everyone will be positively affected or be receiving the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. That's just right. to, and just to back that up, if you go to Joel 2, verses 28 and 29, in verse 29 it says that God will pour out his Spirit on my men servants and my maid servants. That mm-hmm. is, those who are responding to him, opening their hearts to receive him. Mm. Excellent, excellent. Did I just answer Liz's question with one sentence? Because mm-hmm. uh, I, mixed, I mixed it up in my brain and overcomplicated it. <laughs> Therefore, Babylon, her plagues will come in one day. In Bible prophecy, a day is symbolic of a literal year. So these plagues, the Bible is saying here, will come within one year. Yeah. It was so funny because I knew you were doing that when you were doing it, <laughs> but I didn't know exactly how to kind of spare you from that. <laughs> and, you know, there was a slight little small part of me that was feeling kind of good because I do that all the time. So <laughs> I felt like, yeah, this is good. We, have, we, we enjoy some, your time. Some camaraderie. No, no, Thanks, that, no, just a little bit of camaraderie, you know. Uh, Lon, do you want to add to that, add to what we were saying? Oh, the, the only thing I would add to uh, um, what you and Sharissa were sharing in relationship to the Holy Spirit is Acts five thirty two. We are His witnesses, and these things mm-hmm. of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit that God has given to those that obey Him. Not everybody obeys, therefore, not everybody receives the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well said, well said. Okay, last question for the night. Terry is asking from Facebook. He, he makes a statement. Thank you, Justin. Did I miss this? But also, what about the what about Christ ruling on Earth? For 1,000 years before judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent question, Terry. And um, the Bible in Revelation 20 talks about the thousand years, the millennium, we often call it. And um, the thousand years, there's actually, unfortunately, in the last few minutes, we don't have enough time to unpack the whole chapter, but I would love Come to. Come on, I think all of us it. would love <laughs> to. Yeah, you can do it, Justin. No problem. Yeah, so, Two minutes, no so problem. just to, to summarize, um, well, get the prophetic code, and I think, I think you may have requested it, actually. There's an entire Bible study that really breaks down. And the key question I think you should be asking is, is the thousand years going to be with Jesus and the righteous on this earth? Or does the Bible actually teach that the thousand years is going to be in heaven before Mm -hmm. returning to this earth? And uh, I think that, you know, this Bible study guide in prophetic code is so solid. Um, I, I love actually just going through this chapter and basically... If you go through this chapter and you make three columns on a whiteboard or a piece of paper, before the millennium, during the millennium, after the millennium, and every verse virtually says, you know, and when the thousand years have expired, verse seven, Satan will be released from his prison. And so, like, there are indicators within the chapter so that you can actually go and plot on the, in these three columns, where these different events fit. And, um, there are also, you know, other passages that, that complement these. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would just say, like, it's so hard to answer this thoroughly in just a little bit of time, but, uh, Sharissa can do it. So no, go ahead. That's yes. one big clue. The words of Jesus, John 14, one to three, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house were many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, that you may be also. Yes. Mm-hmm. Second coming happens. Mm-hmm. Jesus takes those who are waiting for him to where he is now, mm-hmm. which is not on this earth. That's interesting. I've never connected that with the millennium. 
The, the, the Bible teaches that in relationship to the judgment, the judgment takes place before the thousand years, during the thousand years, and after the thousand years. And so when you read about the judgment at the end of the thousand years, that is not the only place that judgment is mentioned in the Bible. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, the Bible says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward everyone according to his works. That's the return of Jesus Christ. He is bringing his reward with him, the Bible says. You don't hand out rewards and then sit down and say, well, let's have a judgment and find out, you know, what rewards these person, you know, this person receives and that person. Judgment has already taken place here. Then you go to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, and when you do your three columns, you're going to find that this one goes during the thousand years. I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. That's during the thousand years. And then, of course, you go down to the end. And verse 11, I saw a great white throne and he that sat on it from whose face the heaven and the earth fled away. There was found no place for them. And you have the judgment that is taking place at the end of the thousand years. These three judgments all serve very different purposes, mm-hmm. but altogether combined, their single purpose is to ensure that sin, pain, suffering will never, mm-hmm. ever exist ever again anywhere in the universe. Amen. It, we, it ensures that the power of choice that we have right now will never be taken away because if God takes away our power of choice and says, well, you know what, it's impossible for you to sin right now, then he's just obliterated love. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as love without mm-hmm. the power of choice. But it ensures that the power of choice remains and at the same time that no one will ever choose to sin again. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible Bible study. Mm-hmm. You have to get prophetic code. It's free. Okay, It's absolutely free. You have to get the prophetic code course um, that are put together there's a there's a, a a central study on this one right there that goes through the whole detail of it, and uh, yeah, give us a call, send us a text message. We'd love to hear from you. Couldn't add to that. Thank you so much, Lyle. That was amazing. Uh, so, guys, we've come to the end of our time at the end of this series, and uh, I want to, as the Bible says, not quench the spirit. Uh, any parting words, final sentiments you guys would like to say to our audience, our crowd? Um, if you pointing, you're pointing yeah. at this book. Okay. If you haven't requested a copy of this book yet, uh, text us, call us, put a comment below, and get your free copy. Our series, um, it's a lot of it is is within this book, in different words and different aspects of these truths that we've brought out. Um, but there's so much in here. It follows the path of freedom from the dark ages to America's role in current world events and um, outlines Bible prophecy in such a powerful way. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't read it yet, if you don't have a copy, uh, let us know. We would love to get you a copy, and we would love to hear from you as you read it and, and learn and um, you know come across its pages and chapters. We'd love to hear some feedback from you as to what you think of it. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say, too, uh, this resource is going to be online indefinitely. Please uh, you know, share it with friends. Be an evangelist for this series. I think that uh, God has really spoken. I, I believe that these presentations have been true to the texts of Scripture. I think they've been fair and balanced. They have not been sensational. They have not, um, you know, appealed to the fanatical side of all of us. They've just been rounded, spiritual, biblical presentations that I think are of great value. And so, uh, don't hesitate to share these with friends or family members. Uh, if you want more information, call us. We're happy to share, uh, once again, the great controversy Bible study guides, they're all at your disposal through this ministry. Uh, it's been a pleasure to, to be with you. 
each and every night, and I'm a little hesitant to end the show. <laughs> I'm helicoptering. But, um, I'll just say, man, yeah, it's not an right easy on. job to, to moderate like you have been balancing the questions. And oh. we just, man, we're grateful for your moderating and guiding and leading this discussion. Yeah, it's well, been, and you. your input Amen. has been really great, too. Uh, what I'm really glad about is Lyle's uh, sage-like wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've been calling him the, 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 the patriarch lately, and I don't know why. I think it's just a uh, feeling I get. But no. Yeah, well, that's because I'm, what, two years older than you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to respect my elders. Uh, but listen, uh, yeah, you guys have done a great job. Thank you so much, and God bless you guys. We'll uh, see you hopefully soon. God bless. Take care. Thank you.